Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, December 3rd, 2019, and I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co-host for the evening, Anastasia. Lavendar is getting ready for her solar return, but she'll be back next week. And we'd like to let you know that starting in January, we'll be going to an every other Tuesday format, bringing you great guests and essential knowledge for starseeds to better serve the planet. And this will also give us more time to focus on our clients. And with over 430 episodes in our radio archives, there is still plenty of great starseed information waiting for you. Well, this week is the anniversary of the passing of Natalie Wood, who was much more than an actress. This material from Lavendar's Vault talks about who Natalie truly was and Lavendar's assignment to train her. Unfortunately, she died before that could happen, and this is Lavendar's story about how it affected her and the future Starseed missions. This presentation was pre-recorded, so we won't be doing uh, questions this evening. And you can find more of Lavendar's work in our Vault of Knowledge, which is on our website, starseedhotline.com forward slash vault dot htm. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. And um, as I said, we won't be taking any questions tonight. We do have an online starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other starseeds, thanks to Tammy's helpful dedication. And you can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please just click follow on our page here, and you'll get our weekly show notices if you enable those. Our main website, as I said, is starseedhotline.com. And the Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your astrological chart. And the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. If you have a birthday coming up, you better not miss out on your 10 hours of power. It only happens once a year, so you can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And that only takes a few days uh, to get that done. But if you want the interpretation of that chart, you'll need to order at least six months ahead of time uh, because we do have waiting lists. So uh, first up this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia uh, and her wonderful, fascinating, very much appreciated Starseed News. <laughs> uh, hello, Ariel. Good evening, everybody. Great hello. to be with you. Hi, hi. Well, we have a lot of news. So we've had two feet of new snow in Sierra Nevada, six feet in a week above Lake Tahoe or the town of Tahoe. Uh, more than two feet of new snow has fallen in the Sierra, more than six feet that's been recorded in the past seven days at the top of some of the Tahoe ski resorts, according to the National Weather Service yesterday. They reported 29 inches of snow fell at North Star California Ski Resort near Truckee over the past 24 hours for a total of 73 inches in a week. And winter hasn't even started yet. Squaw Valley near Tahoe City recorded 28 inches of new snow for a seven-day total of 75 inches. 
Wow. Oh. Wow. I'm from that part of the world, and it does get a lot of snow. I mean, I remember years where it was way over the rooftops, but they're getting a real early start now. And as a matter of fact, there is harsh weather all over the planet. And uh, leading into that, there was a report that the Washington Post wrote about the snow cover across the United States. It reached a record in the lower 48 states. Uh, the two powerhouse storms that que- uh, swept the nation over the past week have left behind the most extensive early December snow cover in at least 16 years. Snow covered the ground on nearly half of the real estate in the lower 48 states, 46% of the land area of the United States yesterday morning. And normally, a little more than 25% of the nation has snow on the ground at this time of the year, almost double of what we normally get this time of the year across the country. Wow, is that a harbinger of the kind of winter we're going to have? Who knows anymore how it's going to be, but it has been unusually cold and unusually stormy in this country and, like I said, all across the northern hemisphere, lots and lots and lots of snow early, very early. We've had some earthquakes since we spoke last. There was a 6.0 quake struck off the coast of Chile. No immediate reports of damage on that one. Uh, They said the likelihood of casualties was low, probably because it was in an unpopulated area. But they're in uh, Alaska. They had an earthquake magnitude 6 uh, yesterday. It uh, happened east of Amatagniac Island yesterday. Now, uh, Mexico has been having a lot of rain. In fact, again, if they're not getting snow across the planet, they're getting flooding, lots and lots of flooding all over in lots of countries. You'd get tired of having me list on the news uh, every week, all the flooding that's occurring, it's just a lot. So we're going to talk about Mexico tonight. Uh, heavy, heavy rains happened from the cold front number 18, is what they're calling it, uh, that killed some people, flooded dozens of communities in Chihuahua, Sonora, Baja, California. It overflowed rivers and caused landslides that forced the evacuation of hundreds of people. It even triggered a request for emergency help from the Mexican government so that the people that were affected could obtain federal resources. And the volcanoes are, are still rocking and rolling. The Sakurajima volcano in Japan uh, has been erupting. We've had nine eruptions and eight explosions in the last few weeks, according to VolcanoDiscovery.com. And the Popocatapetl volcano in Mexico uh, is also exploded. There has been pyroclastic flow with that. And in Guatemala, there has been three explosions an hour. This happened at the Santa Maria volcano last week. The eruption sent avalanches of material uh, descending down the slopes, east, west, and southwest flanks of the mountain. It coughed out lots of smoke into the sky that went up to 1,700 meters above the 12,000-foot summit. So a lot of ash in the air there. And, you know, I was thinking when I found this story, I've been finding them recently, uh, sporadic reports of the strange trumpet sounds in the sky. And I recalled that it happens in the last number of years just about this time of year. December, January, they, they come in a great wave of episodes, and maybe February, and then we don't hear about it anymore, which makes me wonder if it has something to do with the atmosphere. Anyway, in Anchorage, Alaska, somebody reported and recorded strange trumpeting sounds in the sky 
sounds like the typical trumpeting sounds we heard in a sort of an epidemic of them years back, but they do resurface every year about this time. And this isn't the only report of it, but Anchorage has reported it, and if you want to find out about that, you can check on YouTube. And in the U.K., they have had some floods. Man, swaths of Yorkshire, Yorkshire and Lincolnshire were underwater for days. They had heavy rainfall, which brought parts of the country to its knees, according to the British press, killed some people. They call it a once-in-a-60-years weather event. The photographs on the net show cars underwater and so on. I think, you know, it wouldn't be a lot of rainfall, what we might consider a lot, three to four inches, I think that's what the report said. But on a flat land such as that, on an island where it's particularly flat and low, low elevation, that kind of rain did them in. They, they had a lot of problems with that. Lots, that's a lot of water for them. And, boy, you know, on the front uh, of uh, crop production, considering the kinds of weather we've had, it's not something we think about with our busy lives in our grocery stores, but the farmers have really struggled uh, this past year because of the weather. And now we're hearing out of uh, the north, Minnesota, North Dakota, that the weather in the U.S. Red River Valley has devastated uh, the farmers. This is a fertile sugar beet region in Minnesota and North Dakota. And they had rain and snow that beat down their crops in September and October. Rain and snow early, September and October. Then that was followed by a blizzard. And then they had warm temperatures that left the fields boggy and messy and wet. Then they got a deep freeze, which utterly ruined the underground sugar crop, the beet crop. And that has really given the uh, farmers' incomes uh, a devastating punch. Some of the farmers have said, I'm on my knees this was a 59-year-old farmer who was unable to harvest 500 acres of sugar beets or 40% of his entire plantings in Minnesota. He said, we've never had a situation like this. Now, you sugar lovers out there, be aware, this may affect the cost of sugar in the not-too-distant future. Extreme weather has hampered planting and the harvesting of corn, soybeans, and other crops throughout this year and across the United States and the Canadian farm belts. But in Minnesota and North Dakota which has accounted for 56% of the U.S. sugar beet acreage this year. The freeze is a double whammy, and here's why. Never thought about this. Most of us don't. We're not farmers. But sugar beet growers contract with the processors that make the sugar. And these processors operate as farmer-owned cooperatives, and they require that any farmer who leaves unharvested acres to pay a fee, a price, to the cooperatives so that it can pay its bills at other times. Now, one family's five-generation farm has to pay American Crystal Sugar. This is a company, a processing company. A fixed cost of $343 for every acre that they didn't harvest. And for this one particular family, they have to come up with $171,500, which will be taken out of the payments for the beets that he sold. And this is not just one farmer, it's many farmers that have to pay these penalties. And this is what they live off of. This is how they pay their way. So yesterday, the U.S. government authorized the import of an additional 100,000 short tons of Mexican refined sugar due to the harvest issues in this country. So many of us will be eating Mexican sugar. The United States is the world's third largest sugar importer after Indonesia and China, buying 2.8 million tons this year, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Now, the producers 
of the uh, the I guess I should say yeah the processors of the sugar have issued notices saying that they have unable to produce uh, product because of the act of God because of nature and um, so people are really struggling uh, they say that in the uh, the manufacturing yards of these sugar processing operations that there's no no beets piled up it's empty there's no beets so they say that they have enough sugar for certain refineries certain they have enough beets for certain sugar refineries but not all so they're they're these farmers are depending now on crop insurance but they say that a lot of them are going to go under because they can't afford the loss so it's really a tragedy for beet farmers. It represents a rise probably in the cost of sugar and sugar shortages into the future, particularly as this happens again. It's really devastating to these farmers. Well, let's go to our science department. This is wild, you guys. Researchers have successfully created artificial neurons that behave just like the real thing. Now, the authors of a bioengineering study, which was just published in the journal Nature Communications, say that uh, they can do something that makes you wonder if it's hard to believe. They found out that while a range of neuromorphic silicon devices replicating biological nerve functions have been proposed, suggested, a number of problems have hampered uh, the theoretical attempts to develop them, artificial neurons. Now, people have proposed that they make silicon neurons, synapses, and brain-inspired networks but the designs were not meant to copy the behavior of biological cells. However, they say that they are changing their thinking. They are now feeling a new urgency to develop low-power analog solid-state devices that accurately mimic biocircuits, and they want to use this to treat chronic disease. So now this joint British-Swiss-New Zealand team has described a way of making silicon chips that are much smaller than a fingertip, but reproduce the electrical behavior of the brain, the behavior of biological neurons. This approach, they say, could lead to the development of bionic chips to repair biological circuits in the nervous system when functions are damaged or lost to disease. Well, you just think about this with the development of robots, artificial intelligence, giving these things, chips that mimic biological functioning. Exactly. Don't wow. these people watch sci-fi movies? I mean, really, they need to, don't they? They need to, yeah, yeah, they need to spend a few weeks with some popcorn in front of the TV and don't leave, don't go to the lab, just watch this lineup of sci-fi movies and then go back to work after you've had a chance to think about it. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, there's lots of articles online about AI and where they're going with this, and that fits right into it, Glo- uh, hand in glove here with what <laughs> the fears that a lot of people have. And now there's another story out of MIT. Now you've got to sit up and notice MIT is talking about this. MIT researchers have devised a novel circuit design that enables precise control of computing with magnetic waves. No electricity required. Now, I'll read this a little bit slow because this is hard to absorb, but it's very important. It really is like ET tech. Okay, this is wild stuff. This is an advance that takes a a step toward practical magnetic-based devices 
which have the potential to compute far more efficiently than old ordinary electronic devices. You see, our classical computers rely on massive amounts of electricity for computing and data storage, and lots of wasted heat is generated. You know, they talk about what we're going to do to save uh, the planet with preventing global warming, and yet at the same time with our focus on technology, all of these servers and computing devices, all of this mass amount of data storage generates a huge amount of heat. All of that's problematic if we want to stop global warming, as they call it. Well, now, an MIT-invented circuit uses only a nanometer wide. Let me tell you, that is itsy-bitsy. A nanometer-wide magnetic domain wall to modulate the phase and magnitude of a spin wave, which can enable practical magnetic-based computing using little to no electricity. This will provide precise control of two changing spin wave states that correspond to the ones and zeros used in classical computing. Wow. That's just... That's just, talk about amazing. Step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, that's what they use it for. I mean, it's amazing. No telling what other applications this kind of tech has. All right, this is a beautiful story about the environment. Scientists are now playing sounds underwater to bring dead coral reefs back to life. Can you imagine that? This is wonderful. Now, dead coral reefs have become one of the major horrors resulting from human impact, with thousands of miles of coral ecosystem across the globe being transformed into bleached-out graveyards due to the devastating impact of fast-heating ocean temperatures, rising sea levels, pollution, and overfishing. Well, for years, the Great, Be- the Great Barrier Reef off of Australia's coast, which is the largest living structure on the entire planet has been undergoing a slow death with massive amounts of the coral simply dying while the rest of the once beautiful coral transforms transforms into a lifeless clump. But now scientists have discovered an ingenious way to restore life to the dead patches of the reef. They play ambient sounds of nature through loudspeakers to lure fish into the area. It's a magnet for the fish. The fish then clean up the reef. They eat all of the waste and stuff off the reef. It allows for the growth of the corals necessary to recover the ecosystems. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Just give it half a chance, right? Now, scientists are also telling us that the Great Barrier Reef has recovered from five death events in the last 30,000 years. So it's died before and come back, died before and come back. And now they have discovered something to help it. And it's the fish that are doing it. How beautiful. It's like an orchestra to me. That's symphonic. It's a wonderful thing to contemplate. Okay, our last story, something to make you think about, something I've already thought about. You've probably thought about it, guys. But um, light pollution is a significant but overlooked driver in the rapid decline of insect populations. This is according to the most comprehensive review of the scientific evidence right now. They say that artificial light affects every aspect of the insects' lives, from luring moths to their deaths around bulbs, to spotlighting insect prey for rats and toads, to obscuring the mating signals of fireflies. 
Scientists say that they believe that artificial light at night, in combination with habitat loss, chemical pollution, invasive species, and climate change, is driving the insect declines. They've done 150 studies about this, and they say that we posit here that artificial light at night is another important but often overlooked bringer of the insect apocalypse. Insect populations are declining so much, they feel free to use the words insect apocalypse. Now, unlike other drivers of the, of the decline, they tell us that light pollution is easy to prevent. Switch off unnecessary lights and use proper shades. They say that doing so will greatly reduce insect losses immediately. So it makes us think. Turn off your outdoor lights at night and so on and so forth. Even your indoor lights, if you shield the outside from the inner light, it helps the bugs. Who would have thunk it? Really? And our quote, our quote for the week <clears throat> Many of the interdependent mammals, birds, and corals may be vulnerable, living precariously close to the extinction cliff. But nature is also wild and robust and swings back if given the smallest crack in the concrete. Witness the dandelions. And so when you think about it, you know, life tries so hard to find a way, and if there is a way, it will find a way. And that tells us and speaks to our hearts of the intelligence in everything around us. Things want to survive. They want to endure. They work to save themselves because the divine nature in them wills it so. And I wonder sometimes about human beings how we wish to somehow in our own lives sometimes want to give up. You know, we want to surrender. We get discouraged. You know, we must never give up hope and we must never stop trying because nature really sets the pattern for that. It shows us that, you know, <laughs> there will always be another day and there's always a reason to strive and to reach and to try to live and to live as good as you can. And nature does it so we can do the same. It's all about coming into cooperation uh, with other forms of life and rejoicing in life itself. Don't you think, Arielle, sometimes it boils down to simple respect? Absolutely. You know, we look at we look at society and we see that maybe there's an absence of thoughtfulness in our activities and our actions, and being hurried is a part of that. But the one thing that the shamans tell us is when we slow down and we connect with nature, we are taught the greatest things and we learn the most growth and the most inspiration from nature. And nature right now is in need of our cooperation with it, and if we will just do that, it will find a way. Again, witness the dandelions, huh? It's amazing. Right. They do come up. They do come up. And if you if you watch a uh, over a period of time, if you see a house that's decayed and crumbled and fallen, and the foundations are there, just it doesn't take any time at all for the for the uh, grass and the vines and the trees to start growing right up over the top of it, as if it were never there. So life is a very powerful force. Anyway. We might want to think about those things. And from my heart to each one of you, much love. Have a beautiful week, everybody. You too, Ariel. Thanks so and much. To you. Thanks so Talk much, to you next Anastasia. Week, okay. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, you know, after listening to Anastasia's news, um, I had been debating on whether to um, to mention this this evening, but I think it works really well. 
with what Le- with what Anastasia just presented. And I got an email that uh, Lavendar had forwarded to me that someone else had forwarded to her about a very important event that is taking place on January 25th, 2020, and it is the Global Day of Protest to stop 5G on Earth and in space. And there is a petition that you can sign if you go to uh, the website 5G, and that's the numeral 5, 5gspaceappeal.org. And they have uh, groups in as of right now, 24, 25 countries that are organizing events as part of the Global Day of Protest Against 5G. And this email goes on to say that um, there's a list of companies planning 5G satellites. At the top of the list is SpaceX, which is in the United States, has plans for 42,000 satellites. They've already launched 120. They intend to launch 60 at a time twice a month and then until they can develop a larger rocket that can launch 120 at a time. But as soon as only 420 are in orbit, they're going to turn them on. It could be as early as February. In the United Kingdom, there's a company called OneWeb that has plans for over 5,000 satellites, and they're going to be launching 30 at a time and as soon as 300 of those are in are in orbit, they're going to turn them on. And Canada has plans for 512 satellites. Amazon, 3,200. Facebook has plans for thousands, but they won't tell how many uh, or what their plans are. In Russia, there are um, more satellites, 640 to be deployed. And um, it, the list goes on. And they will only broadcast 5G, and then they'll sell user devices that will be mounted on your homes and vehicles that will function as the small cells. And um, another company has several thousand that are going to broadcast not only 5G, but 2G, 3G, and 4G. So all of these things coming together are blanketing the planet with a lethal web of radiation and it's not just the songs of the birds or the croaking of the frogs and the insects that are rapidly growing fainter but we are affected just like them because we are just as delicate and vulnerable as the insects so if they're dying so are we and on that point um, I was going to mention that uh, when I was coming back uh, from Arkansas um, just before Thanksgiving, uh, I, I got on the airplane and a, a woman, lady, young lady, sat next to me with a four-month-old baby. And as soon as she was in the seat, she had the baby on her lap, and she's got her cell phone out, and she's texting or doing stuff on the cell phone. And I could not resist myself because this innocent, beautiful little child was already absorbing radiation from the cell phone. So I went and spoke up, and I said, did you know that uh, children under 16 are 400 times more vulnerable and likely to get cancer, brain cancer, because of exposure to your cell phone or to their cell phones? And she was shocked. She was horrified. She had no idea. 
And and I went on to say, you know, baby monitors, the smart diapers, you, we've got to protect our children from this electromagnetic radiation. And it's all over the planet. They're even putting cell towers in the Amazon rainforest. So everyone in the world can have you know, <laughs> radiation. And do you know that after, you know, and that woman was like, oh, my gosh, no, we've agreed, my husband and me, we're going to raise this baby, um, you know, like it was the 80s, which kind of made me smile because it means that she was probably born in the 90s. Um, And then as, you know, we're taking off, she kept that phone on and hold, I mean, the baby was on her lap. The phone was like on the baby's tummy for the entire flight. She heard me. She said, oh, my gosh, thanks for telling me, but she didn't change a thing. And it just, it, it really bothered me to the point where, okay, uh, I, have to, I have to rant a little bit about this. And then I got the email about this January 25th, 2020, Global Day of Protest against 5G. And um, I encourage you, I'll tell you the, the, um, the website to go to once again, it is 5gspaceappeal.org and um, you know, send it to your friends, to your family, especially families with children because this is the greatest threat to starseeds ever, ever, because we're more vulnerable to the harm and the radiation. So d- do what you can to help educate. Go to that website. Sign the petition and um, if we all join together in unified protest against this, maybe someone will pay attention. So, okay, that's it for my rant. <laughs> and now we're going to switch gears here and um, do this presentation that Lavendar uh, pre-recorded because um, it was November 29th when Natalie Wood died, and she was to be a leader in the metaphysical community. So here is from Lavendar's Vault, Remembering Natalie Wood. December 29, 1984, at 5.05 p.m., Gloretta, New Mexico. Shirley McLean. Now, where do I begin? Our meeting, I guess, was destined to be. I had known that my path would not only cross Shirley's, but that somehow we would have many experiences together. For years, I'd been flashing about her, but nothing of any real significance. I'd smile with my brain when I'd read about her in the tabloids, but that was about it. My real knowing about Shirley started in Las Vegas, Nevada, somewhere between 1977 and 78. I'd pick up an article about her, and as I read it, I knew that we would come together with a meeting of the minds. Little did I know at the time that in the near future, it would be related to something that I would call War of the Minds. At that point of my life, I was living and working in Las Vegas. What a town. Whatever you wanted or even think that you wanted, you could have in ten minutes. The town truly never shuts down. After spending five years there, I learned that the highest of souls 
and the lowest of souls were gathered there. Huge E.T. experiment. It seemed to be a place where great transmutations would happen, that accelerated evolution would take place in Las Vegas. As I already mentioned, in the summer of 75, I was one of seven people who had an extraterrestrial experience out at Lake Mead. We watched aliens walk on the water. None of us were ever the same after that event. Our lives really changed drastically. I'd already had several ET contacts, but I can look back and see that this particular encounter seemed to set my feet on a path of great evolutionary experiences. As I've mentioned earlier, I was conducting counseling work by using astrological charts. I utilized my psychic abilities more than the science of astrology, which always kind of made other astrologers about half nuts. At that time, I knew about my double pineal, but on the other hand, I really didn't know or would comprehend to know for many years later what that really meant about how the ETs would come and go from my double pineal. The Lake Mead experience accelerated my abilities. It seemed that my sight, hearing, and all of my other senses were just amped up about a thousandfold. People started coming to counseling at an, an accelerated rate. I didn't know it then, but I had an ET that came and worked with me every single day. Their work was handled on the QT because it wasn't time for them to make their everyday physical appearance in my life. I suppose that I was just too green or too emotionally crippled from all of my romantic adventures to handle extraterrestrials on an everyday basis. I suppose that I had to hang on to suffering a little while longer before they made their entrance to me. There is one real valuable lesson that I learned from my space brothers and sisters, and that is, they know what is happening to us, and they are matching it with cosmic timing the whole time that we're doing our little earth dance. You know, people would come to me by word of mouth, and I was always booked. For three years, I had no set fee, only donations. But after I started working with more cosmic laws, I discovered that the flow of exchange is necessary to do the best job and also be free of karmic ties. I lived with the flow of abundance, but nothing that you would call extravagant. When I wanted to be extravagant, I would just visit some movie star friend or people with a lot of Leo planets. Money for the sake of money has never really meant much to me. I suppose that is why I have so little respect for it. I observed in my counseling sessions what part money played in people's lives, and I finally figured out that people played the money game because at the end of their life they could count all their toys, and whoever had the most toys upon death won the game. I suppose that reasoning warped my sense of values and led me to believe that money can truly burn a hole in your pocket. And besides, whoever saw a hearse with a luggage rack on top. Okay, so, yet when I left my practice in Vegas, I left with a man who was financially secure from his father's oil trust fund. And by this time, I was physically ill, mentally exhausted, and spiritually drained. I had locked into heavy judgment, could see people's potential, tried to help them, only see some of them crash and burn. Truly burn. Judgment is really, I think, what made me sick. I can see that now. I had gained an enormous amount of weight, had polyps in my colon, and I couldn't go to the bathroom without an enema. So, 
for yeah for three years. So when Thurman came into my life, I was I was ready to leave that life and pick up a new one. I had a celestial visitation from a female energy that asked me if I would help on an assignment of transmitting a person to a higher level of being. And I said yes before I really had time to evaluate what what I have to do in such an assignment. The first three years were very difficult and trying to my soul. Thurman knew how to drink and act ugly and play with people's minds and emotions. He knew nothing of metaphysics or cosmic laws. This was not an easy assignment, especially with a mouth like mine, which was, you know, my mouth gets like a torn pocket. I would go to my ET female friend and beg to be relieved of this assignment, and she'd be sitting in my other pineal talking to me as one would speak on the telephone, and I would yell, I quit, and she'd say, not now. She actually would sit on my head and would literally paralyze my tongue when she knew that I had taken all the abuse I could stand. If she hadn't been there 24 hours a day, I would have left in the first month of torture. She kept telling me that Thurman was a very high being who had lost his way through many incarnations in flesh. She wanted me to bring him to his awareness so that he would remember who he was and why he was here. If I could turn his life around and put his feet firmly on the path, then I too would benefit through exalted, multi-level experiences. She reminded me of my past history of giving up on projects just because I got bored or just couldn't see things to completion. She told me that if I could stay to the end of this project, the reason that I'm mentioning about all this, about thermness, because it's important to understand our relationship and our work and our pledge to the welfare of the planet. There have been many people come and go out of our lives in these last six years who have tried to get us apart for one reason or another, but they never seem to grasp or understand galactic packs that are made with millions of souls hanging in the balance. Cosmic agreements are very serious for they affect not only a root race that is vanishing, but a new root race that is now being prepared to come to Earth for the new age of reason. This all relates to other regions of space that are of a higher cosmic order. So needless to say that family, friends, etc. could have so little an influence upon such a cosmic project. Now as to the meeting of Shirley MacLaine. I must start with the months previous to our official meeting because it shows the integral workings of invisible forces that are at work that are trying to bring us together, while another force is trying to keep us apart. On November 1st, 1981, I was informed by galactic sources that a great wave of feminine energy was being brought to the planet. This energy would hit the cells residing in female bodies and strengthen it, thus causing some women to go overboard and lose their balance. Others would take the same energy and move through it and make it part of their lives forever. Not all women reacted the same to this energy. I remember feeling extremely charged and how difficult it was to close my eyes to even sleep that whole month of November. I can recall pulling my energies back from Thurman 
and from most male energies at the time. There was a few days that I'd awake thinking that men in general were the enemy. What was really happening was an alignment of energies in my own physical body that was to bring my male and female energy to some sort of balance. I think that this energy gets periodically active at different times of the year and cause some women to go just right off. With menopause, the pill, hormone imbalances, pollution, and sonic disturbance, who can really pinpoint these times unless one is in total balance and can home right in on these restructuring days for women? No medical person would ever step forward and agree with me as to what is happening to the women of the world. They'd be laughed at, right? I was told that I was to send quartz crystals to Cairo, Egypt, and they would go inside the pyramid to be charged with energies that would match this feminine energy shot that was being beamed to the planet. I was unable to go, but I sent Elizabeth Ellis, a beautiful star maiden, to be responsible for the crystals. From the moment I took the assignment about those crystals until the assignment was over, I was under heavy bombardment from dark forces not wanting these crystals to be charged with this feminine energy. One hassle after another occurred from November 1 to November 9, the day the crystals got on their way to Cairo. After I delivered the crystals to Elizabeth at the airport, I flew to Catalina Island, where we had rented a house for three months. I remembered crying most of the way. I was tired. I was suffering from psychic attack, frequency discernment, and physically and mentally exhausted. I, I was a wreck for three days, but after a brief rest, I continued my work doing transmissions from the spacecraft called the Star of Bethlehem, or some refer to it as TX-11. This is the same ship that helped during the time of the Essenes in Israel and was visible the night that Jesus was born of earthly flesh upon the planet. The same entity comes and goes now off the ship, but he goes now by another name, and some people know him as Sananda, and others give him other names for different times. And TX-11 is the new term given for the new age of reason. I wrote transmissions during the day, and at night I'd go to Cairo, Egypt, to check on the crystals that I had sent with Elizabeth and it was during that period of time that I was trained by crystal masters as to what should be done with crystal power on the planet. You know, you just have to remember what happened with Atlantis to get a grip on what that responsibility level must have looked like. It's a great responsibility rests with anyone in charge of or in custody of certain kinds of crystals. Because of past misuse of them, entire civilizations have disappeared. I realized the seriousness of this crystal work and kept myself in balance for this special time in Cairo. So every night at 10 p.m., a spacecraft would bring me up, take me to crystal school in Egypt. Now, it was during this period of time that I started flashing and thinking about Shirley MacLaine. Her face would come and go in my mind and I'd read something about her in the trade papers or see an old movie of hers on TV. I was stimulated to walk down the, to the corner payphone and call an old girlfriend of mine, Jeanette Browning. I hadn't even spoken to her in three years, yet 
I remembered that she'd been among the ones who sat around the round table in my kitchen while E.T.'s had been coming and going throughout the house, so I wondered who she really was. Anyway, I called and invited her over to see me at Catalina. She told me that she was working for Shirley McLean as her secretary. Actually, Jeanette was Shirley's assistant while Shirley only played in Vegas. She never really went anywhere else with her. I first met Jeanette when she was dating and working for Robert Goulet. She had been in love with him, and she had loved to be around movie stars. She didn't want to be a star. She just wanted to walk in their shadows, so to speak. After I hung up the phone, a series of things started to happen. I felt this buzzing in my head. Time was distorted, and I was so hungry I could eat in two tomorrow. I realized that the activation of the feminine energy was being activated within me, and that Shirley's energy some way, somehow, extended to me at Catalina, but I couldn't figure it out. I just shrugged it off as something weird and returned home to continue the transmissions. I had asked Jeanette to come over in about a week, as then I'd be through with my nightly visits to Cairo. But you know what? The very next day, Jeanette showed up unexpectedly with a very handsome man who later I first named the first lieutenant of the Prince of Darkness. When he walked through the door, my hair stood on end. He was gracious, friendly, but I could detect a frequency operating that really spelled out who he was. I couldn't tell Jeanette as she was so naive in such matters. You know, she had the discernment of a worker ant, so I had to keep to myself what I was picking up on her friend. They invited me to dinner that night, and it was at dinner that I started really being tested. But whose forces? Well, just figure it out. It was not important to mention all the tests. The important thing is that I passed it. Because at 9.30, I promptly stood up, excused myself, and said that I had an important meeting that I had to attend. One of them wouldn't let me alone and kept insisting I stay and return with him to his boat. I kept walking and told him that I had an important meeting in Cairo. He said, Egypt? I said, yes. He called me crazy or some insane term and let me be. What this yo-yo didn't understand was that I really would be in Cairo, Egypt by 10.05 and wouldn't return until 7 a.m. the next morning. I felt that all that had happened had been designed for me to see where my weaknesses and strengths were at that time. The thing that now stands out in my mind is that the date of this was Pleiadian lineup, November 17th, 18th, and 19th, the galactic days of activation that I have come to know so well. So no wonder I was being tested by the first lieutenant of the Prince of Darkness. By the next morning, I knew that I had passed the test. Yet, I knew that there would be other tests to see if I would remain true to the quest. A week later, around Thanksgiving, Thurman came to Los Angeles, and we got a room at the Hacienda Hotel, and it was close to the Los Angeles airport, and Elizabeth would be arriving back with the crystals at 2.30 a.m. the day before Thanksgiving, 1981. We picked her up, got the crystals, went back to the hotel. I wanted to, to just stay up and, watch, and catch the helicopter back to Catalina so that we could have Thanksgiving at our house there. Besides, on Channel 5, they were having a Twilight Zone day from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. reruns of Rod Serling's stories. I really wanted to see that. 
Thurman said that he felt that we should stay at the hotel and not take the helicopter that morning. I grumbled, but agreed. At 8.30 a.m. that very morning, that helicopter crashed on its way to Catalina, dumping its passengers in the ocean. No one was killed. So, Thurman was right about that one. When I look back at when things started going wacky, it was when Elizabeth brought the crystals back to me from Cairo. It seemed that there were forces that followed those crystals, or forces just hovering and monitoring what was going to happen with the crystals. All I know was that some kind of war had been declared on me personally, and it was because of my agreement to take responsibility for the crystals and their subsequent energies. When we returned to Catalina, I felt a feeling of doom approaching. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I felt like crying five or six times a day. This went on for three days. <clears throat> on November 29th, my galactic female friend who'd been living in my other pineal decided to bid me farewell. She had been my constant companion for three years. What was I ever going to do without her? She explained to me that she had to leave my energy field and that I needed a long rest. She had done what she could with Thurman through me, but she also knew that if she stayed, my nerves would burn out and I could possibly die. This news shook me to my foundation. What was I ever going to do without her? She'd become a great part of me. Her records were now part of my records and vice versa. We'd made such a good team that the thought of such a drastic separation was devastating, to say the least. So, on November 29th, she explained that she'd be leaving in a couple of days. After the heavy transmission, she suggested that we take a walk to town. About 4 p.m., we walked down to get a newspaper. Everyone was talking about the death of Natalie Wood, the actress. I was stunned, numb. I couldn't believe my ears. My solar plexus started jumping. Tears came to my eyes. The news of her drowning was so shocking that I couldn't get my bearings. We walked back to the house, and I started washing dishes. I had to do something. I was crying and washing, crying and washing. I knew that something had gone wrong for she was slated to be one of the beings with walk-in energies to come forth and help the planet by stepping forward and helping the people. I'd been told in one of the transmissions that I was supposed to meet her, and that we had a lot of work to do together. I was from the same genetic cloning operation, and she was a part of me. I was devastated. What had gone wrong? I looked out my window and asked, Is it time for me to leave the island? At that moment, a big, I mean big iced tea glass flew off the draining board, landed on the floor without breaking. In fact, it jumped off, and just before it got to the floor, it slowed down so it wouldn't break. I knew this was a signal to get the hell out of Dodge. Remember Dodge City and the train? Well, this is that moment. So the next morning, we started making plans to shut up the house. I'd started having pains in my bladder. My nerves seemed shot, and in two hours, I was bleeding. I felt the sharp pain of a kidney stone, and I knew that feeling from three years before. 
I just now remembered that my galactic female friend arrived one month after my kidney stone operation in Florida. And now that she had left, I was experiencing another kidney stone. I wonder what this connection was. I had one more brief transmission about Natalie, explaining that she had lost her balance of reasoning and was an easy target for the dark forces that were monitoring her. I suffered emotional pain right along with her friends and family. My suffering was from another point of view. I knew who she really was, her potential, and what her assignment would be in helping to awaken the people. She would have gone down in Earth history as a woman who helped transmute millions out of spiritual darkness. She was a star maiden of galactic origin. She was a star from whence she came. And now she'd only be a memory of a famous movie star of Earth. What a loss. I suppose that this was my first real jolt about discernment. I knew that she had lost hers completely. A few years later I discovered that there are certain types of people who have a genetic code of activation and that they have similar characteristics like Natalie Wood, Elizabeth Taylor, Joan Collins, Suzanne Plachette, Elizabeth Ashley, etc. all have this same characteristic and some have corresponding missions. And because of my coding I did belong to this group. There are others connected to this mission who are not famous but that doesn't lessen their importance on the planet. I realized that I had to get off of Catalina Island and fast. I felt energies that were disruptive and alarming and that were entering my house. This was nuts. So, there was only one seat on the on the seaplane, so Thurman decided to take the boat. Every time I took a step, I was in pain. I waved to him as he went off on the boat. I called Gina Bellado, another star maiden trying to be an actress, movie star, to come pick me up, but she had a, an important meeting with an agent who hopefully would make her famous. I couldn't believe where her priorities were at that moment. Didn't she understand that I was bleeding and that I could be dying? She did, though, find someone else to pick me up. The whole episode was shocking. I was watching Thurman on the boat, but something made me turn around and see my luggage on top of a shuttle bus, and I yelled, Where are you taking my luggage? and it seemed that the seaplane had been cancelled at the last moment and everyone had boarded the bus to ride 20 miles up to the landing strip. I climbed aboard, took my seat, and decided that I'd use my mind to stop the kidney stone from moving. I succeeded and turned around and looked out the window. I saw the face of another star maiden friend of mine, Chris Griscom. I remembered her telling me how she had given birth to her baby alone but with no help. And at that moment, I understood her dilemma of pain and being alone. I knew that if she could do it, that I could do it. And sure enough, I stopped that stone right in its track and also the pain. It seemed to take forever to get to the landing strip. When we got there, the pilot, who looked like a replica of Alan Ladd with a cigar in his mouth, told me that he had had the, the seaplane on the runway when a voice spoke to him and said, "'Turn the plane around.' It will never make it back. So with that, he turned the plane around and picked up the, the land plane. After he said that, I climbed on board, looked out the window, and then I saw Shirley MacLaine's face. It was then that I heard my inner voice say, Oh, Shirley, Natalie's gone. It's now up to you to help the people on the planet. Well, where did that come from? I couldn't imagine why I would say such a thing. 
I hadn't even met Shirley yet, but something deep inside of me seemed to know. I did not know it then, but Warren Beatty, Shirley's brother, had been deeply in love with Natalie, and was at that moment in deep sorrow and depression because of her untimely death. I was so relieved to arrive safely at Long Beach Airport. Thurman and I drove to LAX and flew directly to Las Vegas, where my best friend, Belva Bloomer, lived. She, as of this writing of this, wrote fan letters for Shirley up at Cripple Creek, Colorado. I knew in my heart that if I could get to my friend with her healing abilities, that we together could bust the kidney stones, and then I'd pass them. We made quite a team. She would hold the beam, and then I would shoot, and then try to pass them in the urine. And this went on for five or six days. I have never experienced so much pain. My nerves were raw. Natalie was dead. And where was my galactic female buddy? Gone. My personal world had collapsed, and I couldn't get a handle on what was really happening to me. Jeanette Browning, Shirley's secretary, asked me to come to her house to get well. I wasn't in a position to make many sound decisions, so I said yes. I stayed there from December 4th to the 16th. Jeanette had transiting Neptune on her natal sun, which kept her in the twilight zone most of the time. She couldn't turn around that she wasn't making some unwise decision, and looking back on those days, I felt kind of sorry for her. But later, I discovered that enemies come in many disguises. On one particular day, Thurman decided to show up and give me a gigantic healing with two giant crystals. Jeanette came home early to help. She had had several drinks and was sitting at my feet holding the point when the doorbell rang. It was flowers from the one she had been with in Catalina, the first lieutenant of the Prince of Darkness. She set them on the table downstairs, which was directly under my bed. There was an energy exchange set up, but I don't know to this day how to describe it with any clarity but the energies coming from the crystals had aligned them with something that was killing me and not making me well. I knew it in the minute it happened, but I was too sick to know what to do. But I never will forget it. Never. I also realized that Thurman was playing the role of half-friend, half-villain. He should have been on top of the situation, but his ego got in the way and out of control, and he had absolutely no discernment. I knew that the energy trying to kill me also knew what my mission was to perform and simply did not want me to succeed. With naive Jeanette and then Thurman play, playing acting his new role as God, I knew that I had to get out of there and fast. I wasn't thinking too else, but at least I knew that if I stayed that I might die. I know this sounds like I was filled with fear. But I was dealing with energies that were not of this world, and the test was too much to take because of my physical problem. Also around that time, I remember calling Chris Griscom. Thurman flew her there uh, to Las Vegas. She worked on me, and I remembered uh, her bringing some amethyst crystals and putting it in a glass of water, putting it in the sun, and all the purple left the amethyst. I drank the water, and somehow... I was able to get my next uh, energy up to where I could literally drive out of Las Vegas. I had Thurman drive me to Flagstaff, Arizona, where we had another house. 
I had 104 temperature for several days. And during my fever, I saw other dimensions and had many unusual visions. I encountered a being that reminded me, well, of the Ayatollah Khomeini. And I think it was him because I actually saw him later when he did leave the planet. It was the same guy. And others that looked like his assistants. Dark star lords were beaming energy constantly at me. I couldn't believe it. During this period of time, I talked to Jeanette, who wanted me to talk to Cha-Cha. And he'd been with Shirley for two or three years, training her in metaphysical matters. She called him David in her Out of the Book uh, series, which is really a composite of two or three others who came to help her. And at that time, Cha-Cha was living off of Shirley's charity, so he was quite protective of any new people who would come into her life. He was doing drugs, drinking quite heavily. He'd had experiences with extraterrestrial beings, and he just couldn't function with ordinary humans. He had been with a female cosmonaut. She activated into him a lot of advanced knowledge, made love with him, and it spoiled him so much that he could never be satisfied by an earth woman. He was a casualty of great spiritual indigestion. But now that I look back on it, I'm sure there was a runner, also from Ramsa, that was slowly but surely driving him away from Shirley and out of her life. Ramtha, well, this was his M.O. I told Cha-Cha that I had a screenplay to show him, hoping he would read it, and if he liked it, pass it on to Shirley. I had written a screenplay called It's Happened Again, the story of two souls out of body. They fall in love, then reincarnate back into body with the help from a spacecraft, a script that I heard from beginning to end in 45 minutes at Mount Charleston, Nevada, years before. In between training Thurman and Cosmic Laws and doing transmission, I developed the screenplay over a two-and-a-half-year period. I had a lot of help by celestial beings creating the screenplay, so I just assumed that everyone would welcome it with open arms. Boy, was I wrong about that. I was rejected from every corner of the film industry. So I felt it'd be proper to put it in Shirley's path in case she saw the potential of its birth on the screen. All this time, as Cha-Cha was reading the screenplay, I had dark star lords hovering over my bed. Was this some old past karmic debt playing out? Who were these energies trying to kill me? And if they kill me, then what? Then I didn't know or understand, but as the years passed with many more experiences and similar type of energies, I know that they were engaged by higher forces to test me, not to kill me. I knew I had a mission, and I knew that nothing, absolutely nothing, was going to stop me. Well, that concludes our presentation for tonight, and we thank you for listening. We will be back next week with our Christmas show with Gloria Amendola, uh, bringing a message from Mary Magdalene. So we'll see you next week, and until then, remember to find compassion for all, kindness, and gratitude for all of your blessings. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.